Welcome to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, which is brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Throughout the autumn months, we've been having local authors on this podcast. We haven't been doing our usual content where we might have an interview or a conversation, but no, we have been having local authors coming onto the podcast to read original works of short fiction. And today on the podcast, we have John Jeffire. This is the third installment in November of our local author showcase, and you can find more info about John Jeffire at writeondetroit.com. He has published several works, including Motown Burning, River Rouge, Shoveling Snow in a Snowstorm, which is a collection of poetry, the latter, and several other works. But today, he'll be reading a short story for us And it is a powerful and evocative story. He has a rich lexicon when it comes to his use of descriptive words. And he has, I'd say, a great narrative voice. I think it'll really pull you in and something to listen to as the colder months take hold here in Michigan. So without further ado, this is John Jeffire. Hello, everybody. My name is John Jeffire, and I'm going to be reading a short story called Broke. It was time. In mid-October each year, as the air brought cool evening relief to the sweltering days of physical summer labor, the men of the ward gathered on Saturday in the yard behind Krakowski's market for the contest. Work was over for the day, and the men were all in good spirits. Some even had Sunday off. Whiskey was passed around, and tin cups of beer were filled and refilled. Riley, though, would go easy on the spirits, at least until the contest was over. He took a single swig of one of the traveling bottles and passed it along quickly. This year, he could win. Martinez Grucius was the ward champion for at least ten competitions running. He was a short, neckless barrel of a man, thick of chest and forearm, somewhere in his early forties. He worked at the brewery on Gratiot Avenue, lifting and hauling oak kegs of beer all day. His strength was formidable. But Riley believed he had a chance. He had taken third prize four years ago and been the runner-up to Grucius the previous three. Last year, they battled a solid three hours before Riley finally succumbed to an obviously exhausted Grucius. The closeness of victory hung on him. He had been working on the dock at River Rouge for eight years now, and at 27, his physical strength was not seen so much in his bulk, but in the hardness of his knotted arms and legs. For as long as any of those assembled could remember, each year the weathered iron frame dray was rigged to the massive gate hinges anchored into the short stone wall that encircled the Krakowski yard. Onto it, they piled 50-pound grain sacks, or brick courses it took two men to lift. Once everyone had settled and said their hellos and caught up on the talk of the ward, each man who wanted would step between the long arms of the dray resting on the ground, face out toward the crowd, squat down, grip the thick handles, and then struggle until they stood erect, shoulders thrown back, the muscle in their necks popping, their bodies quivering under the load, but a strained smile appearing beneath their sweat-soaked foreheads. That 
or they failed, allowing the massive weight to crash back to the ground, cursing as the steadily drunken men laughed, cheered the effort, and shouted for the next man to step up. No records had ever been kept, and all that was remembered was the names of the recent winners. Each year, different objects of differing weights were heaped on the dray, with only the final champion being important, not the official weight of his lift. That said, it was guessed that well over 350 pounds had to be hefted to make it close to the final five or six competitors, and somewhere close to 450 or 500 pounds put you in line for the grand prize. All the men present put in one dollar and then cast side bets hoping to cash in. Grucius, of course, was the obvious favorite, but they also wagered on who would lose out in his first lift or if this man would last longer than that. On frequent occasion, one man issued a direct challenge to a ward rival on who would journey further into the test, and those assembled would wager accordingly. The man who dropped out third was given ten bottles of Mr. Krakowski's beer, a very nice and appreciated prize, one certain to be boasted over in the coming year. The second man left standing received the same amount of beer, but also five dollars, a damn sight of money for a Saturday's fun labor. The champion took home the beer, but also two bottles of whiskey and ten dollars for his efforts. A handsome payoff, but not as handsome as the bragging rights as the ward's strongest man. Riley had been working hard and steady on the docks in the preceding months, lifting and wrestling crates onto the massive pallets, carrying goods from the ship holds to the pier below and other goods back again. Often, he and the other stevedores and lackeys would engage in boxing matches, for money, of course. And he had taken home small fortunes betting on himself that allowed him to buy his wife Matilda a china tea set and all of their four children new clothes and shoes. Some days he stayed extra time and loaded trucks with the goods delivered from the ships, sides of beef, lumber, you name it, and he was given a small portion of the wares as a reward. He was not squat like Grucius, but he possessed the raw bone, vain power of someone in full manhood. Matilda was excited. He would likely bring home five dollars. She did not care about the beer. But what if he walked through the doors of their home with a crate full of beer bottles and whiskey and ten dollars in his pocket? He would take her and the children to the beer garden and they would all eat steaks and Matilda would have a glass of champagne. More important, he would have enough to re-shingle and tar the roof for the coming winter. Riley spit in his hands and prepared for his first lift. The competition started with five sacks of grain stacked on the dray and about 15 men made the first cut. For contestants like Riley and Grucius, this was a mere warming of the muscles. At six sacks and a half course of bricks, they were down to seven men. We here all night, shouted Grucius, filling his cup with beer. Two sack now, go, two sack. Yes, some brick too. We make going fast now. Mr. Krakowski signaled two of his sons to comply. They tossed on two large sacks of grain, dusted their overalls, and attempted to return to the crowd. Some brick too. They looked at their father, who nodded. Wait, wait, wait now. Hold on a cotton-picking minute here. That ain't fair. We got to go in spells here, gents. Two bags is fine enough for this next round, said one of the remaining lifters, Lynch, a portly, humorless man Riley knew from church. Blah! Ho, yo! Kelvin Coolish, put break two. 
The yard filled with laughter as Grushus waved his hand and drained his cup. The old man Krakowski was known for his wisdom, and he considered the dilemma. Ultimately, it was his dray, his yard, and he was the final judge. Okay, men, we do this. This go-round, we do the two bags, and then we'll talk about adding more bricks next round. Grucius mimicked his disappointment, waving his hand and then turning his head to spit, but Riley was in no hurry. With the two bags added, the field was cut to four men, Grucius, Riley, Lynch, and a young man, Gustavo Stokoli, a football player at the high school and the oldest son of the ward butcher. He was barely shaving, but a large boy, smiling, enjoying the camaraderie and respect of the older men. Twenty solid red house bricks were balanced onto the dray's load, along with a bundle of iron rods taken from a back shed. Surely all the men would strain now, even Grucius, although he would make every attempt to hide it. The crowd was fully invested in the contest. The whiskey and beer brought the level of their enthusiasm to a fever. Young Tocoli made the first attempt. The crowd shouted encouragement, knowing in a few years he would likely be champion. He smiled broadly and took a deep breath as he lowered to grasp the dray handles. He began his ascent, his eyes bulging, the veins in his neck flaring. The handles rose perhaps a half foot from the ground when the boy hit the wall, his legs unable to summon any more power to raise the massive load. He stood suspended for a few seconds, the older men urging him on, but it was no use. He would not win this battle. Instead of moving upward, the dray was pulled inch by inch back to the earth until the handles met the ground. The boy's legs gave way with exhaustion, and he tumbled forward into the dirt. He was met with good-natured laughter and slaps to the back as he was pulled back to his feet. Young Tocoli would not win any beer, but he was showered in it, and he would no doubt drink his fill before the evening ended. Lynch was next. In order to secure the third prize, he requested three house bricks, about 15 pounds, be added to the load. Mr. Krakowski consented. Why you so little, huh? Be man, put more, shot Grucius. But Lynch ignored him and the laughter that followed. Lynch was a serious man, and this was a serious task. Grucius laughed and bantered as he set himself between the handles, but Lynch, due to his religious training, would not allow himself such absence of humility. His eyes bored ahead, oblivious to the gesticulations of the ward's men, the taunting of Grucius, setting his sights on a prize bigger than ten bottles of beer. Could he outlast Riley or Grucius, perhaps even both, and actually leave with some prize money? He pumped upward, and the strain caused his body to quake as he drove to stand erect, veins in his temples flaring. Inch by inch he straightened, each minute step seeming it would be his last. A half minute passed, and still he battled to stand bolt upright. The dray could be heard rattling, the iron bars cackling. Finally, he stood quaking, but full upright. As the weight crashed down to a deafening cheer from the onlookers, Riley knew Lynch had made his last lift for the year. In short order, both he and Grucius made the lift, not without effort, but Riley felt he had far more wood left for the fire. He would put Lynch away and raise the stakes, hopefully speeding the rate at which the heavily imbibing Grucius tired. He breathed deeply. A pain darted behind his right eye. It wasn't liquor. He'd only had one quick touch before beginning. 
Last week on the dock, though, he had been in a scuffle with Nemkovsky, a block-headed Hungi who challenged him at the end of their shift. The Hungarians, Slovaks, Bavarians, Czechs, Austrians, and Poles, all thrown in under the name Hungi, were eager to see the man who had risen through their ranks challenge the Irishman, who was currently king of the docks. It had been a hard day at work, and Riley did not especially feel like fighting, but a victory would allow him to walk home three dollars richer. The battle was fierce. Riley was tired and not toe the line with much fire stoked in the belly. At the signal, Nemkovsky roared forward, though launching haymakers from all angles, hoping to secure an early knockout. Riley parried, slipping in jabs under his opponent's bull-rushing wildness, buckling him with quick uppercuts against the colossal skull whenever Nemkovsky lunged into range. After knocking the bull to the loading dock floor twice, Riley delivered what he thought would be the final blow, certain he had cracked the bloodied Nemkovsky's jaw with a right cross to the chin. He waited to see his man fall a final time, but instead the damaged bull looped a wild hook that caught Riley flush on the temple. At first, his vision deserted him for a second, and his knees buckled. The Hungies roared their man on, and Riley fell into a queer dream state, awake but not fully conscious. All sounds seemed to be coming from underwater, and he saw himself in sparks of green and blue as if standing above the concrete ring, squared off with his attacker. Fueled by his mates, Nemkovsky bore clumsily forward, but Riley staggered to the side and instinctively clinched his man, tying up his arms to smother his punches. In seconds, his vision cleared slightly and he found his legs. They broke the clinch and Riley, head aching, neck seizing, and eager to finish, decided to pile on and rain down a succession of punches that had the Hungies stepping in to save their bloody, swollen man from any additional damage. Shaking slightly, blurry-eyed, stiff-necked, Pain rooting behind his right eye, Riley staggered home, at one point throwing up and losing his direction, but grateful to be three dollars to the good. If it please, I'll go next. A bag and five bricks if the others don't object, Riley said to Mr. Krakowski, holding up a thumb on one hand and five fingers on the other. Well, that's going out of order. You know that, right? Lynch's supposed to go next. Yes, I know, sir, but this will give everybody else a wee rest if they like. I only make the offer if they take it. Krakowski considered the offer. Lynch sat hunched on the side, elbows to knees and head down. No question he'd welcome a rest. Grucius was talking to a pack of friends, laughing, unconcerned for the negotiations. Riley spotted a bottle of whiskey in the mix. More time for the others was his advantage, not theirs. So after a piece of thought, here is my rule. Your offer comes with a risk. If we let you go next and you miss, Lynch will claim at least the second prize and you will take third. You understand that? I do, sir. That's fair enough, it is. Krakowski looked over at Grucius, who was too busy filling his cup to notice, and Lynch merely nodded his consent, too tired to speak. Krakowski signaled his sons to lay on. The bag and bricks were applied, and Riley strode forward, his temple throbbing, but otherwise confident. After spitting into his hands, he dug his boots between the iron arms of the dray, squatted, his back straight and his head looking up to the now dark sky. The air had cooled and torches been lit around the yard, and the crowd, now well into its pints, had grown less noisy. "'Make real game,' shouted Grucius from the sideline. "'That one put on.' 
He pointed to a wagon wheel sitting in the corner of the yard. The men laughed at the suggestion, but saw that he was serious. Riley ignored him and burst upward, laboring only slightly, his head filling with blood. The cheering of the crowd became a muffler over his ears. His legs shook momentarily before he stood bolt straight. Lynch threw his hat down and turned away. He was next. His attempt was a hopeless formality. He had given all his might in his last lift, and his fire had blown cold. Once between the handles, he made several tries to move the weight, but could only give it a few inches of distance from the ground. He finally gave up, head down, and trekked back into the crowd, with several of his friends swatting his back in consolation. Grucius was summoned to make his lift. Two of his mates actually had to lead him to the dray, where he shook his head to clear the cobwebs. No question, he was drunk. As he bent over to grasp the iron handles, he had to put a hand to the ground to keep from falling. Once in position, he swayed slightly, but his eyes were closed, almost as if he had fallen asleep. Then he struggled up, not his usual cannon burst, but the strain of a horse trying to pull a chain stump from the ground. Because he was so squat, he did not have to travel far to reach the upright position. But this was not the man who had won so many consecutive championships. He began to let out a wounded cry, but willed himself upward, finally reaching a full stand before allowing the weight to crash down. Yeah, 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 you see, easy working, he sputtered, his lungs heaving. The yard erupted in laughter, the men jocular, entertained and moved by the spirits, the contest finally down to the final two men most had expected. Riley called for a grain sack. This would be the lift to put Grucius away. After it was thrown onto the menagerie of objects on the dray, he made his way to his position. He set himself, the pain behind his eye jabbing him, his neck suddenly becoming rigid, but his mouth forming a confident grin. I say before, add wheel, make real game, Grucius shouted as Riley worked to find his grip. Be still, Martinez. The wheel's too heavy to add to what's already there, countered old man Krakowski who was said to have been a winner back in the days of his long-ago youth. Grucius was drunk or trying to distract his adversary, or both. Bah! We'll be here all night. Put on wheel, insisted Grucius. Hey, Irish boy, you wait. Put on wheel and I go first. Show how to do it. The wheel was well over 200 pounds, probably closer to 250. The suggestion was foolish. Riley stood up, welcoming a bit of a break his head feeling like it was resting under the hull of a lake freighter on the docks. He took a good breath as he assessed the weight presently on the dray. Sir, we can take off three sacks and five bricks and put the wheel on? Krakowski looked to the Irishman. He was lost in the math of Riley's suggestion, then looked to his sons for confirmation, or at least some help. I... I don't know. I, I suppose we could. That okay with you? he asked the keg lifter who hadn't been listening and whose consumption of spirits would not have allowed him a clearly thought response anyway. What? Yes, it okay. Make wheel, said Grucius, who lifted a cup to Riley, an inferior yet admirable rival. I'll go first if it be okay with Mr. Grucius, offered Riley. Despite the pain in his head, he felt strong and going first would allow Grucius to fill his cup one more time. He glanced at Grucius and then spit in his hands again. Grucius looked vacantly at him and then smiled. There, you see, he bellowed. 
Hey, real man. Yes, my friend, I follow you. Are you square with that, Riley? Asked Krakowski, amused at the Irishman's offer. I'm fine with that, sir. Talk spread through the crowd. This was madness, but good, entertaining madness. Two of the competitors who had already fallen out ambled to the overgrown grass where the wheel lay. They hefted it up and then rolled it to the dray where some other men were taking off the grain bags and bricks as requested. Four men lifted, then securely balanced the wheel atop the load left on the flat bed. It was Riley's time. His head was pounding, but he put it aside. He was one step closer to $10 by upping the ante. Grucius could not match this lift. He was drunk, he was old, his britches had gotten far too big. Riley took a huge swell of air into his chest and exhaled. He spit into his hands a final time, rubbed them together, and reset his feet. He crouched, his back a ramrod, and he looked up into the black sky. He controlled his breaths and waited for the proper sign. His head throbbed, but he refused to feel it. His back and forearms were not sore or fatigued. A certain lightheadedness started to set in he never felt before, but it was banished. He would have to go soon. He exploded up. The dray rattled. The men whooped and cheered. Riley bit down hard against his own teeth and willed himself skyward. The insides of his knees and elbows screamed. The blades of his shoulders flared out. The blood coursed through his head like a rabid waterfall. His legs straightened ever so slowly. In seconds, he had only to drive his hips forward into a line with his shoulders and the lift was his. The men hollered, their voices again surfacing from the depths of the river. A rail spike suddenly drove into the back of his right eye and darkness began to assault his foggy vision. One more inch and he was upright. The spike drove and redrove into his skull, threatening to push his right eye completely out of its socket. His neck locked, and he thought his teeth might break off from biting down so hard. But a half inch, a straightening of his shoulders, his heart hammering in his skull, unclenching his teeth just enough to let out a banshee cry. He was stock straight, the dray quaking in his victory. Then full darkness. The dray handles fell from Riley's hands. His body toppled forward into the dirt, his nose breaking on the impact, his blood flowing unseen under the moonless night. The men rushed to him, some falling onto him in their drunkenness, slamming him on the back in reverence, hooting their support, a few slapping his sweaty head in admiration and congratulations. Dr. Filkins was gray, and along with his peculiar odor, he carried a leather doctor's bag, house to house, spectacles notched on the end of his nose, which sprouted tufts of wiry hair on either side. Accepting tea or whiskey in a meal from all he visited, in addition to his normal fees. The Riley home was, in a word, modest. The large front bedroom was for their four children, the smaller for the parents. There was a front parlor with a stuffed chair, a frayed couch, some vases, and an ornately framed photo of Riley and Matilda sitting with their oldest child, Charles, a tidy kitchen, and a shed and outhouse in the back. Matilda's ceramic teapot and cups sat on a shelf her husband made and hung above the sink tub across from their Detroit jewel stove. They had talked of building a bedroom or two onto the back of the house as the children grew. They had plans. They had dreams. Riley lay in their bed. He was feverish, 
one moment unmoving in the next, without warning, calling out wildly and scaring the children, crying in the next room. At odd intervals, he moaned and grimaced, seized in pain, and then relaxed, the air leaving his chest as he sank back into the bed. Both his eyes were black from the broken nose, but his right eye sagged down his cheek. The doctor peeled back his eyelid, felt around his throat, and examined the swollen, purpled bloating in his right temple. Well, said Dr. Filkins, placing his stethoscope back in his worn bag. Will he be okay, doctor? asked Matilda. Will he be okay? That, ma'am, is a matter of definition. She did not understand his answer. Did he mean her husband would recover, be back to working, lifting up the children when he returned from the docks as she readied his supper? Filkins looked Matilda over, waiting for her to speak. Doctor, I'm afraid I don't understand. He was fine, strong as a bear, and now, now he's, he's like this. He's hurting, doctor. What happened to him? Will he be a self again? Mrs. Riley first. Let us consider the premier question. Putting it in a way you'll understand, your husband has broke something in his head. Probably deep in his skull, a vein, possibly an artery. The only way to know for sure is to bore a hole deep into his cranium to have a look-see, but the process would certainly kill him. That I will officially rule out as a diagnostic option. Matilda looked at the doctor and then down at her husband, whose lips were moving, but no sound emitted from his mouth. Well, will he, will he get better? How long before he's better? <laughs> you make many assumptions, dear woman. There's no telling if he will ever be better, whatever that means. Dr. Felkins, it means we have four children who need to eat. It means I need to know what to do. What can you do? What can I do to help him? He must get better. We need him to get better. Well, I think it's best not to get your hopes up, ma'am. I've done what I'm able to do. What you can do is keep the cold washcloth applied to the swollen area and try to reduce the swelling. And there, you have two bottles of strong spirits. If his pain becomes intolerable, a brimming dose of that will help. In the meantime, if you can get him to drink, brew him some tea and mix it with honey and lemon if you have any, and keep it beside him there at the table. She looked at her husband, who was talking to someone but not saying anything. His eyes were closed, and he was sweating. She removed the cold cloth on his head, which was now warm to the touch, and dunked it back into the bucket of cold water at the bedside, wrung it, then reapplied it gently to the swollen area. As she did, she bent a bit lower and kissed his wet forehead. Uh, it's quite a shame when these young ones decide to turn circus strong man to impress their lads. <laughs> what profits such foolishness? It profit ten dollars and two bottles of whiskey and ten bottles of ale, doctor. That's what it profit. It what? That's my husband's profit for playing circus strongman. It brought money home to the family. Same as boxing matches at the dock. He earned his money honest through the muscle and bone God give him. He done what he can to make our lives better. He has no shame in whatever he done. Filkin straightened his coat and cleared his throat and tapped the side of his head. Now that I think of it, there are, I am certain, mm, other treatments you might wish to purchase or pursue. Some elixirs and medicinals I happen to be in possession of at this very moment, right here in my satchel.
These are powerful chemical concoctions and very well could ease the onset of further more dangerous symptoms and alleviate present symptoms to boot. Here, I happen, I'm understanding what must be done, doctor. I got mouths to feed. We won't be needing any additional medicine. I thank you for what you've done. She did not look at the doctor, only her husband lying inert in their bed. Well, then, if I'm no longer needed, there's only the matter of my compensation. Matilda continued to look down at her husband, adjusting the cloth on his head. Filkins looked Matilda up and down, then broke a grin. So, good woman, my normal fee is one dollar for the visit, assessment, and treatment I rendered. In this case, however, I would be willing to accept uh, an alternate form of compensation, if that would help you. Matilda looked up at the doctor. She did not like the smile on his face. He was saying something, but meaning something else. Her husband was in pain. He could not stand up or walk or speak. There was nothing to smile about. She felt threat the doctor's words. I'll fetch a dollar. Oh, madam, I understand your finances. And again, if your purse is light, I could consider some alternative methods of payment. I said, I'll fetch a dollar. Matilda walked to the nightstand beside the bed and reached down into the top drawer and retrieved four bits. Well, all I meant, good lady, was that I would be willing to accept um, one of the bottles of whiskey in exchange for my services. That along with the reduced fee of two bits. Or here, Matilda interrupted, wishing to hear no more. We owe you four bits. We're going to need the whiskey, but here, you can have the crate of beer for your trouble. We won't need it. You'll be blessed to have it. Filkins raised his eyebrows and tilted his head in calculation. He accepted the coins, taking Matilda's wrist with one hand and removing the coins with the other. I'll get your beer, Mr. Filkins, she said, as she pulled her wrist free. There are times, even in your sleep, when you understand something or are aware of something, when you are able to see even when your eyes are closed. In the dead of night, a week after her husband's mind broke, Matilda opened her eyes but somehow knew what she would see. The bedroom she shared with her husband swept in moonlight. The window opened slightly to let in some coolness. Tildy. She could make out the moon of her husband's silhouetted head. He was awake. He had not sat up since the accident, but here he was, sitting up. She cleaned him in their bed when he messed brought soup and tea and whiskey to his lips, applied the cold cloths, prayed each night and several times a day to St. Dymphna. Was this a dream? Was he really returned? Georgie? Tildy, he said hoarsely, reaching for her hand. My Georgie, you... Tildy, darling, did you get the money? His voice was soft and rasping, but clear, lovely music. The money? The prize money, darling. The prize money, yes, yes, I got the prize money when they bring you home. They bring me the money and the whiskey and the beer. Georgie. She could not finish her thought before the moon of his head sank back to this pillow. She got out of bed and paced to his side where she found the oil lamp and lit it. His face glowed like a baby's. His eyes were closed again. The right one still sagged as if carrying a heavy weight. The grounds of Eloise were vast. 
The hospital was the largest building Matilda had ever seen up close and ventured inside, five stories tall with two peaked turrets and a porch wide as Woodward Avenue. But there was also the smokestacks of the powerhouse and a water tower that touched the sky, a farm with cows in the south field and a trolley to port you anywhere you needed to go. There were two other buildings as large as the hospital, the poorhouse and the sanatorium as well as a firehouse, a police station, a post office, a lake with a boardwalk, a bakery, a chapel, doctor's homes, and more, a complete city unto itself. Dr. Morton said there were almost 10,000 people, patients, here and all, and close to 2,000 workers and staff. He assured her that her husband would receive the best care possible and all that could be done for someone in his condition. He explained that her husband had incomplete dementia, a form of insanity whereby, for unknown reason, on strange occasion, he could be lucid and communicate. But those brief moments would be rare and not to be expected on any consistent and certainly not on any permanent basis. He was, for the most part, what he called an imbecile, a bit more advanced than an idiot, but below a moron. The scientific terms jumbled in her head. Only a miracle from God above would ever let him recover, the doctor said sympathetically. It was best to make him comfortable, keep him from harming himself or someone else. That was the humane thing to do. It was what God would want for her husband. Right this way, ma'am, said the white-coated orderly. But after two years, she could walk to George's room blindfolded and needed no escort. Can you tell me, has he been eating his meals? Oh, he eats. Has he been well? Well? Well, as can be expected, you might say. I mean, all considering. He ain't been a problem, if that's what you mean. The orderly carried a nightstick. She knew exactly what he meant. On some visits, her husband's face was bruised and his arms welted. Dr. Morton said he was strong and at times willful. There's still a mind in there, and when he sets himself to it, he can be a handful. But don't worry, the doctor assured her as she inquired about her husband's wounds on a previous visit. He's fed and he's bathed. He is receiving the best care that can be expected. After the aide unlocked the heavy door, they found him in his room sitting in a chair facing the barred window, his mouth slightly open. Something in the far distance of the grounds had taken his interest. He did not move when Matilda pulled up a chair next to him. Whatever he saw in the distance, it had locked his full attention. Matilda found it hard to swallow, and her eyes began to well. Would you leave us be, please, for a spell? Why, most certainly, ma'am. I'll be right close if you need me. The orderly left, and Matilda looked out the window, trying to see what her husband was seeing. Beyond the buildings, the field stretched and then gave way to clusters of trees. She took his hand. It was warm and thick and twice the size of hers. The calluses were gone, only the milky scars of his scraps on the dock remaining. She looked out onto the green fields, a goat or cow occasionally lifting its head. He used to be the one to take her hand as they walked along the Detroit River and strolled through Eastern Market when they courted. When he proposed to her in Grand Circus Park, at night in bed when she was carrying their children. What you see out there, Georgie? 
His mouth began to move, but no sound emitted. He was balding now, and life in the hospital had created a softness about him. She held his hand tighter. He began to raise his other and point. That's it, she told him. His mouth continued to move, as if in some silent language he was explaining exactly what had captured his attention and refused to let it go. She felt the language without really hearing or understanding. It was something only he could speak and only she could hear. She looked from the window to her husband. His left eye widened and his right tried to lift. His mouth opened wide and he sat up straight in his chair. His arm extended as he pointed to the distance. That's it, Georgie, tell me. She looked out the window. Following the length of his raised arm, the field was lush and green, the animals peaceful, the trees swaying to a spring breeze. Georgie, would you like to walk today? To go out where you're pointing? He lowered his arm and his neck fixed. He turned his entire body to her. The fog lifted from his good eye. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, he nodded. Okay, then, we'll go for a grand tour. She stood and laced her arm through his. He was too big a man to lift. He seemed to understand and used her only for balance. He pushed up from the chair, caught about halfway up, as if he forgot what he was doing, then finished his drive upward. She could swear he smiled. Here we go, darling. His walk was more of a shuffle. They left his room and made their way past a soiled man groaning on the floor. Yelling broke from rooms down the hallway, but they moved ahead, pushing aside anything that might waylay their journey. They had to walk down a flight of stairs before reaching the outside doors. Once on the wide porch, they made their way to ground level. He descended the stairs the same way, left foot first, right following, slowly, carefully, left foot again, then the right. She held his arm, letting him do the work, careful not to pull or pressure him until they made the sidewalk. That's beautiful, Georgie. The children would be proud of you. He stiffened, pulling her arm and drawing her close to him. Something like a moan came from inside him. She reached to his shoulder with her free arm and patted him. They froze a moment before he loosened and they began their walk along the path. The air was sweet and light, the sound of birds following him. Orderlies crossed here and there, two of them chasing down a woman whose blouse was nearly off. Some men fished from the dock, two boats bobbed in the lake. Smoke poured from the stacks of the powerhouse. If she closed her eyes, she was promenading along the riverfront, walking with her fine husband, a tall, God-fearing, powerful man. She was pushing a buggy with their youngest inside, the other children skipping along with her. She was holding on to him as they strolled to the moving pictures to see Geraldine Farrar's latest. She was walking home with him from the beer hall after a grand evening of dance and laughter. They made their way out towards the fields and a stand of trees. His gait had lengthened, and she believed he held to her arm, not for balance, but warmth, closeness. The word stopped her. It was his old voice, his deep, certain voice. She had only heard it a handful of times since his accident. It lit a fire inside her, a small combustion of hope, followed by a dark blanket of reality. His head is broke. Don't get your hopes up. 
He had incomplete dementia. These sweet, clear moments would not find them on any consistent or permanent basis. She stepped in front of him and gripped his arms. He looked down at her, his left eye clear, the smile on his face more certain. Yes, Georgie, the fields are lovely, aren't they? His good eye was a pool of spring lake blue. His smile echoed his old heart. No, you. Her body shook. Her eyes welled. Why, why would she lose her control at a few words? She made do in his absence. She cleaned as many homes in the ward as she could. She took in the laundry of some of the families George had worked with on the docks. Charles was the man now, and he looked after his brother and sisters while she was away. She returned home each night with some coins, bone exhausted, and made dinner. They no longer asked when Papa was coming home. They knew. They still had the photo in the parlor to remember him by, or to think they remembered him. Did she really remember him? And why would she still come to Eloise? She was young. Yes, she had four little ones, but her figure was still shapely. Many of the men in the ward, including smelly Dr. Filkins, gave her the eye when she was porting a basket of clothes or carrying the groceries home from A&P. She was a woman, a natural woman, a woman of God, but still a natural woman. She was not so old she did not still have feelings, longings. She looked up to her husband, his good eye clouded. The sweet curl of his smile fled. He looked out at something in the field or the distant culvert. Once again, she lost him. Some things you don't notice until you must. Amidst all the buildings at Eloise was a red brick one, shaped like a circle. They called the roundhouse. It was the morgue, not really a house at all, unless it was a temporary home for the dead before they were taken to the potter's field. And that was another thing Matilda had never noticed. In the field just south of Michigan Avenue were hundreds, perhaps thousands, of flat stones with numbers carved in them planted in the ground. The patients who died at Eloise had to be taken somewhere. The northwest corner of that field was where they came to rest, stone seeds that would never bloom. When the telegram arrived, she had to take a moment and sit at the kitchen table, stop her laundry, and take a moment to herself. Was she sad? Or worse, was she relieved? She didn't want to answer those questions. So the next day she took a carriage to Eloise. At the roundhouse, she was greeted by a woman with spectacles seated behind a large desk in the entryway and then taken to the back. It smelled of hard chemicals. A doctor and several orderlies were working away at a table on which the body of an old man lay. There were several partitioning curtains. She knew what was behind each. Dr. Dautlitz, this woman is here for identification. In a minute. The doctor gave instructions to the two orderlies before turning to Matilda. And you are Matilda Riley? Riley, yes, Riley, Riley. Um, large fellow. Follow me. They walked a short distance. and The doctor threw back one of the curtains. Before her on a metal table was an open wooden box. The wood was like the wood George had made her china shelf from. Can you identify this individual? Is he your husband? She walked to the side of the crate and paused before peering over the edge. 
It was George. His face was soft and white and round like an angel, a tuft of hair falling onto his forehead. Both his eyes were closed finally, both thankfully closed. It's George. Very well, then. I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, we do have a pressing schedule to keep today. Things tend to pile up around here, if you know what I mean. Miss Ludlow has some papers for you to sign, and then you can proceed to the burial. Miss Ludlow, please take care of, 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 of this woman. In the field, two orderlies watched over four patients who were finishing digging the final of three new graves, a mound of earth next to each. One patient was a small man, his eyes crossed, a trail of spittle hanging from the corner of his mouth, from which many teeth were missing. One was a rotund man who kept repeating yes to himself without having been asked a question. The third was an old gaunt man whose hair had not been cut or combed in who knows how long. The final man seemed more a boy who could not raise his eyes or stop shaking his head. They were nearly finished by the time the wagon brought out the box, which was accompanied by two others. She recognizes George's because of the pattern of the raw grain. Well, ma'am, since you're the only person to come out today, we can do you first. Which hole might you want? The holes were all the same. There was no real choice. She pointed to the one that was closest to the wagon so they could finish quicker and give George the shortest route to his rest. Very well, then. Come on now, you simps. You ain't done yet. Let's get this box here. Yeah, this one. Now, my husband is in that box, Matilda interrupted. What? This box? You sure? Well, if you say so. Okay, gold brickers. Let's put a hoof to it. Come on. Three patients dropped their shovels. It took a poke in the ribs from an orderly's club to wake the wild-haired man to the task at hand. Guided by the orderlies, they slid George's coffin from the wagon and laid it across two ropes next to the middle hole she had selected. Yes, 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 said the stout man. The small man dripped spittle onto the lid. The wild-haired man sneezed and the boy shook his head. The four stood across from each other and took hold of the ropes, lifted, and shuffled toward the hole. Steady now, said one of the orderlies. You don't want the club, do you? Steady as she goes. Yes, 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 said the stout man. As they took position across from each other on opposite sides of the grave and slowly let out the line and lowered the box into the ground. Once finished, the orderlies tugged and recovered the ropes, which they set up for the next coffin. The four patients were commanded back to their shovels, the dirt at first pounding the roof of the casket like rain until it was covered. As the mound next to the grave disappeared and the hole filled Matilda's mind, filled with walks along the riverfront, Grand Circus Park, her wedding day at St. Josephat, the birth of each child, the images moved like a picture show in the majestic theater. She caught herself smiling when the wild-haired man sneezed again and the orderlies laughed and the portly man said, yes, yes, yes. As the final shovels of dirt were patted down on the swollen grave, she thought of a passage she had always heard from the scriptures. In the tale, the Lord tells a man to let the dead bury the dead. Ever since she was a little girl, she had always found it queer. How could a dead man bury a dead man? How could a dead man do anything? Standing next to her husband's grave, she understood. Thank you.
that was John Jeffire reading a short story called Broke. We will be linking to Jeffire's website where you can read more about him. He's born and raised in Detroit. And as we mentioned at the start, among his previous publications, Motown Burning is a book that was in 2005 named Grand Prize winner in the Mount Aerosmith Novel Competition. And then a couple years later, that book won a gold medal for regional fiction in the Independent Publishing Awards. So we'd highly recommend checking out more of John Jeffire's work, including another poetry collection, Stone Fist Brick Bone, which was published by Detroit's Aquarius Press and nominated for a Michigan Notable Book in the late 2000s. And it was something that former U.S. Poet Laureate Philip Levine called a terrific one for our city, and that is really what John Jeffire is all about. The Motor City, the history of this city, all of the character and energy and lineage of this city, which you'll find out more about at rightondetroit.com. And you've been listening to, of course, A Little Too Quiet, which is the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, the host of this podcast, and we produce it here in-house at the Ferndale Library with music provided by John Duffy. Rate, review, subscribe, or just tell a friend. We appreciate you listening.